and that 8% of the cotton of a very special plant would be what would be designated as the right cotton for making muslin. I realized that the fossilized plant is in the Kew Gardens in the UK, which I've seen. It is also in Kolkata. The women would be singing on the boat, spinning the yarn. And that's how the Portuguese said that mermaids make muslin. These were the kind of inspirations I had along the journey. You know, listening, collecting, weaving, thinking that why is it that this particular fabric known to everybody around the world, which belonged over here, was never actually recognized by us. Okay, why is it that this story has been told by the English, the very people who have actually killed it? Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Saiful Islam, Managing Director of Bengal Muslim. He joins us from London, UK. Welcome, Saif. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. I'm so happy to connect with you. I love fabrics myself. I have hundreds of saris. So it was really fascinating to hear about what you do and in your whole journey. Yeah. And, you know, one of the main things with the history that we, you and I, come from is the British conquerors. Most people think of them as coming East for the spices, but they also came for our silks, for our fabrics, for our textiles. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, as a matter of fact, not only the British, but uh, there was a whole list of people who used to come from the West. And you could almost start with the Romans, you know, because the description of muslin as woven air was given as Ventura Textilis. This was given by the Romans. And you can imagine that the Romans, when they first saw this sheer cloth, and then later on, as you see them in the statues, you see these men and women, you know, in these kind of poses with these drapes of cloth. I mean, a lot of the time it could be muslin. I'm not sure that it was. But I know for a fact that Romans used to order muslin from Bengal. And by that, I mean East Bengal, because at that time, Dhaka and the surrounding areas of it, which are famous for muslin, they would take an order from the Romans and the Romans would wait three years to get the delivery of that cloth. And remember that in those days, most of the shipments would not happen over sea, but they would happen over land because, uh, you know, in Bengal, they wouldn't go into the seas. The seas were later conquered by the Arabs in the 12th century, 11th century. Again, they loved muslin to the point that you would muslin for going on Hajj, which is one of the pilgrimages for a Muslim, for a gift to the prophet. There are you know, verses about that. And subsequently, it was the Dutch you know, French, Portuguese, and actually, finally, it was the English who came for these treasures. So there's a whole host of them. And Bengal at that time was enormously rich because as the Romans complained that all the silver of Rome was ending up in Bengal. So by the time the East India Company established itself, there was a plethora of goods. There was no doubt about it. You know, there was different items, but muslin was one of them. When did the East India Company come out east? Well, um, well, as you know, Shah Alam, the Mughal emperor, with whom they signed a treaty, which allowed them to come in at that time. That was the 17th century, of course, you know, when they, when they came in. But they were 
as usual, you could almost say, very diplomatic and very oriented towards trade. However, they quickly discovered that this was the last remnants of the Mughal Empire, and therefore there was an opportunity to grab land and to grab the trade routes, and that's what they did. 69, 1770, around that period for two years, 75% of the profits of the East India Company came from one item only. And, you know, no prizes for guessing that. That was muslin. And if you think about it, I mean, the margins were enormous on, on what they were selling the, the, the cloth for. I mean, they, they were making a huge profit on it. Let's start from the basics. Sure. What is the fiber that is used to make muslin? All right. I mean, this will sound like a bit of a cloth 101. Yes. But obviously, there are three elements to a cloth. Okay, very basic. One is obviously you've got to have the raw material, which is cotton. Okay. Next, you've got to have the thread, which is the yarn. And next to that, you have got to take the yarn and put it together into a cloth, which is known as weaving. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have these three parts of the process and raw materials, one following from the other goes there. Mm -hmm. Now, the basic raw material, which is the cotton, comes from the plant. And in Muslim's case, it is a very special plant known as Putti Karpash. Now, that is the Indian or the Bangla name for it. Karpash actually means cotton, okay? But in Bangla, we say Tulo, as it is said also in Urdu and sometimes in Hindi also. But Tulo means clean cotton. Karpash means raw cotton. So therefore, Putti Karpash, which is the flowering of that. And there's a hint over there because when you see the paintings of that plant, because there are only paintings left at this point in time, you can see a very distinctive yellow blooming flower. And in terms of its uniqueness, this plant was slightly different from other cotton plants today that you have. Okay. It was smaller. It was reddish colored. Okay. It used to actually flower twice in the year, which is once in monsoon and once in winter, mm -hmm. which is amazing because normally cotton plants hate monsoon because they get all soggy. But muslin's cotton actually became stronger when it is soaked in water. So there was something unique about it. So from that, they would then have a very labor intensive process of cleaning that cotton and then making it into threads. How would they clean the cotton? Well, first of all, you know, they would pick the cotton and they would just clean it off the raw materials like dead leaves and anything like that. Having done that, they would clean it with the jawbone of a fish. Now, that is a fish known as boal fish, quite a common fish, actually. It's a family of the catfish. But they would have a specific size, about two and a half inches curvature of the jawbone. And the teeth over there are in double rows and they are, you know, staggered teeth. So that would be the finest comb that you can get on earth. And with that, they would clean it. OK, having cleaned it, they would then take that cotton and then use that string bow, which we call dhunera you know, which has a vibration, okay? The uniqueness of, in terms of muslin was because the fiber was so short, the cotton was so precious, that they would never touch the string of the bow to the cotton, but they would actually just strum the bow just above the cotton, thus creating a sound wave. And by creating that vacuum above, the fibers would float up and then settle down. And in that process, you'd only get 8% of the cotton which means that you know, if you started with something like a kilo of cotton, you'd end up with 80 grams. That was how fine it was. The bow is the one which kind of fluffs up the cotton. That's right. But in this case, 
normally you actually engage the bow with the cotton right in this case they wouldn't actually let it touch it but just do it above the threshold of the pile of cotton hmm. okay and rely upon the amplitude the frequency of the sound to separate that fiber fascinating absolutely I mean, just to think about it makes my you know gets gives me goose pimples even after so many years of it that they would be doing this because they would use a much smaller bow than the normal bow mm-hmm. we have seen when we were growing up as children we have seen these dhuneras going around i don't know if you remember in india yes yes if you ever they would strum that and come you know the start of winter everybody would be rushing out with their quilts and saying let's get it all fluffed up and all that right right but these bows were not the same size these bows were the size of a child's bow quite a small one which the women would only do it and that's how they would separate it and that 8% of the cotton of a very special plant would be what would be designated as the right cotton for making muslin now they would go even further they would spin the yarn and when they spun the yarn because they needed the proper humidity okay which is not always available because they needed high humidity but dry conditions they would actually put their charka which is the spinning wheel okay in this case it was a straight spindle not the round one mm-hmm. they would put it on a boat and they would float in the boat so that the water was all around them and the humidity was all around them while they were spinning the yarn and so in early morning which is when they would do it or late evening when they would do it okay the women would be singing on the boat spinning the yarn and that's how the portuguese said that mermaids make muslin because they thought that these women their voices coming out of the fog and the underwater you know and then muslin is being produced it made the legend and so the legend was that the portuguese said no it wasn't mermaids it was actually women mm-hmm. but it happened in these conditions now once they had made the yarn that would be divided into three categories okay that out of the finest cotton they would be doing the fine yarn and then from that fine yarn they would actually make a category 1 category 2 and a category 3 and the finest category would actually be the one which went into the body of the sari and then the second and the third the second would go into the lower border and the third would go into the upper border was it a special kind of seed the seed itself yeah the seed there are different kinds of cotton seeds like i know in america we have one particular kind of seed yes but for the muslin the seed is unique and for hand spinning the thread of the cotton has to be shorter right yeah yeah well i'll explain it this way first of all when it comes to cotton like many other botanical species around there are four main varieties that's it the world has given us four main varieties over millions of years they've given us that and i can tell you the technical names the gossypium herbaceum gossypium hirsutum gossypium barbadens gossypium arboreum anyway long latin names but there are four out of those four muslin cotton came from one variety which is arboreum the cotton that you see in the states okay hirsutum is another variety and most of these cotton varieties until almost about let's say 300 years ago were about 25% 25% 25% 25% of the world's cotton today the american variety has become 95% because it has wiped out and this is where i you know my blood begins to boil about this is that it has wiped out all other local varieties of cotton by simply the fact that it is the best cotton suited for machine purposes now the cotton that was coming for muslin was a variety that was not suitable for machine purposes and why because the fiber of it was short and the fiber that they needed for machines was long that was one of the reasons why 
However, there were other reasons why the fiber for this particular cotton that came from this particular seed was a special. Okay, it was the cross section of that. So what happened is that, yes, these seeds were so precious that farmers said that they were more precious than silver. And once a crop had finished, seeds would be taken and kept for the next planting, coated in a particular oil known as ghee, which we know in our part of the world, which is clarified butter, clarified butter. Yeah, absolutely. So they would coat it with that and keep it slightly heated. Uh, holding it over a kitchen fire and it had to be kept that way slightly heated coated in clarified butter until the next season which would be about let's say five months away okay and they would be planted again that's the way this seed would last and it was so precious that it could be sold for its weight in silver they said out of these four varieties it came from one of the varieties but within that one variety there were thousands of sub varieties so this was a sub variety within that one variety and today that entire variety along with two others has been obliterated because of what we call as development which i sometimes wonder whether it is what are the other conditions so it needs humidity but it needs it to be dry what are the conditions ideal conditions for this fiber to grow for this kind of cotton to grow well that's a pretty long story actually because what happened is that the british when obviously they understood the value of muslin which they knew much earlier before they had come over here because you know muslin was becoming well known in the world what had happened is that the english trade routes had opened up and now you could actually market this item okay so you could bring it and you could supply it to the market in maybe about 9 months time maybe about 8 months time so something like that before it would be like 5 years that later that it would come and there was actually a supply chain now set up over there so because of this reason okay the english knew the value of this and they decided that hang on you know bengal's got some sort of a monopoly because the plant is growing over there so they took that plant putikarpash and they planted it on the river banks of other rivers they planted it near the hugli they planted it in gujarat they planted it in pune in madras in kolkata and they experimented it with cotton experts that came and guess where the cotton experts came from from one of the colonies and which was that colony america so american cotton experts were brought in okay and they planted it to english ones planted it the experiment went on for more than 50 years approximately about 55 60 years at the end of it the plant died everywhere except in bengal so the fact that that plant grew along the banks of a river in bangladesh gave bengal first of all the claim on muslin okay that it is growing over there now another special thing i mean if you think about bangladesh or east bengal it's a land of many rivers because it's a delta mm-hmm. and this actually at last count almost about 700 rivers but there are three major ones out of the three major ones it grew only on the banks of one of them the meghna that too along a particular length of the meghna which is about 40 kilometers length of the meghna and that's the only location on earth that is known to flower and to actually give its crop now obviously there was something particular about that we have taken soil samples water samples and you know measured all sorts of things there are differences in the waters and in the soil most think that it is to do with the fertility okay obviously with the climate with the water conditions in my book i have you know theorized based on what i've read that the meghna actually comes from the foothills of the assam hills whereas the other rivers come from the himalayas so their water is colder but the meghna's water is warmer the kind of nutrients that you have in the water over there are different so there's different conditions obviously which led it to prosper along that particular section of the meghna and that's where it grew 
you know, when I Googled muslin, you know, I found muslin even on Amazon. Yeah. What is the difference between that muslin and the muslin you're talking about? Well, you've got to step back and think about what I sometimes, I would say, arguably say, that muslin is a global brand. Okay. Now, when I say that, if I say to you today, Apple, you'd immediately say, yeah, I know what Apple is. It's that uh, MacBook. It's got the Apple Watch, you know, things like that. Even a person in China would know what Apple is. You know, they have an Apple iPhone. If I say Nike, somebody in Africa would know what Nike is and somebody in India would know what a Nike is. All right. So these are global brands built over years of marketing and product and sales. Now, Muslim didn't have internet, didn't even have probably a print edition, but everybody knew it. You know, the people in Turkey have names for Muslim. There are Chinese words for Muslim. I've got them in my book. There are Roman names for Muslim. There are Farsi names for Muslim. The Indonesian royalty wore Muslim. In Japan, they wore Muslim at night. In China, the gifts were made of Muslim. The Greeks loved Muslim. And this was the 11th, 12th century. The Muslim is mentioned even in the second century. And today, even when I say Muslim, people immediately recognize the word, meaning some special fabric. And I think this is a double-edged sword. Fame is a double-edged sword because what it leads to is it leads to demand. And sometimes when it is a special product, then that demand is met by counterfeit. Mm. And therefore, first of all, when Muslim became popular, the first thing that, uh, you know, East India Company did was to start the extraction process. So they made the weavers employees. Okay. You were registered. You would have to give Vidya. You, they would say, right, you will be giving 10 yards a month of Muslim, best quality. Now, you're an artist and artists don't actually work that way. They work according to a certain vision, a certain you know, inspiration. But here they were made employees. So that's how the extraction was done. And of course, there were other tools that were used, very harsh tools, legal tools, brutal tools for extracting more. Then came a point that that was not enough. So they started to manufacture muslin in places which were poor and which had a history of weaving, like Scotland. Mm-hmm. And to the point that the English would employ poor Scottish women, Irish women to make muslin. And in Glasgow, there is a museum of muslin. And when I went there, they said, this is our history of muslin. I said, that's no history of muslin. That's just the fact that you were, you were asked to manufacture it. There's a whole floor on muslin in Switzerland because the Swiss loved it in a country which is so cold. So to me, these are the things that people did in order to be, build credibility mm-hmm. of their manufacture. But the point is that the East India Company brought that knowledge back, told the Scottish woman to get along with it, who did it. Now, people would know the difference between that muslin and this muslin. So here comes the marketing. The English called it imperial muslin. Hmm. Imperial muslin was the muslin they made in Britain, in Scotland, whereas the Indian muslin was the one that was the real one, the original one. But in order to fool the people, they would put spices inside those clothes. So they put cloves and cardamom inside it. And when customers would open it in their shops, they would say, ah, it's just come fresh from Bengal. You can almost smell the spices in here. Now, this continued to the point that today, if you go on Alibaba, there are 128 different varieties of muslin. Not a single one of them is muslin. You go on Turkey, there is muslin. You go to America, they wrap babies' bottoms in muslin. They make jam in muslin. Those are not muslin. Those are cheesecloth, okay, which is just, you know, wide weft and warp, wide gapped, you know, loose, very loose woven cotton cloth. What I often say is that muslin was light, white, okay, and cotton. But everything which is light, white, and cotton isn't muslin. 
So everything that is here today in the world today is not muslin. Mm -hmm. I will give you this much like we do ourselves also. Okay. Using some element of putty karpash and other yarn. That's what we do. So if at least it is hand spun, even if it is not putty karpash, but if at least it is hand spun, if at least it is 250 count, not the count that you and I are wearing, which is probably 50, 60, 250 count at the minimum, going up to 300, 400. If it is that, if it is hand woven, okay, then you could claim for muslin and it is 100% cotton. That's the minimum that it should be. We are in a podcast, so our listeners don't know what an actual muslin looks like. Can you give them a visual? Sure. How does it feel to the touch? You know, initially, when I started to just inquire into muslin, I wasn't very impressed with a few items that I saw in the museums, like, for example, Victoria and Albert. And so I went to Brighton Museum. I saw a few items even in Delhi. And then I happened upon a collection, a private collection in Kolkata, which had about 25 of rare pieces of muslin. And I was allowed to hold them and see them. They were very generous with, uh, with showing it to me. It is something which you don't really realize whether you're holding it or you're not holding it. It's so light. It is so, so light that you don't realize whether it is on your hand or not. You may feel a thread or two, but you don't feel the whole cloth. And we, for my book, you know, you say that, okay, there's a photograph of the author in the book. I remember that for the exhibition, we had brought samples of Muslim from around the world, private collections, I had borrowed them. And I was looking at it for the exhibition and the photographers were photographing or cataloging these Muslims. And they took some photographs of me and the photograph of me in my book is taken through Muslim. And you can see me as clearly as you see me right now. Wow. So in its transparency, in its lightness, and in its almost like the non-feel of it, you know, there is almost no feel of it. It is ethereal. And when I was initially looking around for it, I went to the National Maritime Museum in London, just outside London, Greenwich, over there. And the curator, I mean, a good friend, she's talking about muslin. And this was my early days. And I said to her that, uh, you know, Julia, how would I know that it is muslin? I mean, it looks similar to others. And she said, Saf, you know muslin when you finally touch it, okay? There's something about it that you'll know it because it just almost feels like, have I really touched it? Have I really felt it? It is very, very light, very transparent. And there's a certain glow on it, which even over the centuries, that certain glow doesn't go away. Because most of the time, muslin wasn't dyed. Most of the time it was used in its natural color, which is slightly off-white. Almost an ethereal feeling. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, beyond ethereal almost, you'd say. Okay. I mean, the word is overused, but it is true that, uh, you know, when people say that uh, the Arabs described it like the skin of the moon and the Romans would describe it as, you know, woven air, they are coming very close to what it was. How did you start your journey? How did you? And of course, you probably had heard about Muslim growing up because of your heritage. But how did you start this journey? You were not into textile or materials in your career and before this. No, 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 no. 
as um, I studied engineering and then I joined a multinational company. I ran companies. I worked in companies. I worked in various countries around the world, moved from Bangladesh where I had started to other places in Asia, then to Africa and finally to Europe and then to the UK. So I spent about 25 years managing companies and I loved my job. Absolutely about that, there's no doubt. However, I decided that I'd take an early a retirement. So about six, uh, seven years ago, I left the job because I just thought that, you know, the kids are growing up and I'll try and do whatever interests me. My interest in the arts had always been there. My interest in reading had always been there. And I've always had a, a certain level of basic curiosity about things. You know, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, I suppose, in that aspect. And when I was with Drick in Bangladesh, uh, you know, it's a multimedia kind of an activist agency set up by Shahidul Alam. Uh, who's a very famous photographer himself. I was approached in London by a couple of gentlemen who uh, were part of a trust that looks into South Asian heritage. And they had done a little work on Maslin in terms of a book and an exhibition. And they said that, you know, we should take it to Bangladesh because that's the root of this, uh, the source of this textile. I said, sure, sounds interesting. I knew that Maslin, same as everybody else. I knew that it was a special cloth. I knew that the East India Company had come and exploited it and then it was finished. So I said to them, but where is the cloth? And they said, we don't have any cloth. I said, all right, so where are the weavers? They said, well, there are no weavers who can weave that. I said, okay, so where's the plant? And they said, the plant is extinct. I said, so what are we going to be showing in the exhibition? And they said, we've got some photographs and so on. I said, well, you know, if you take that story back to Bangladesh, it sounds kind of reduced, doesn't sound very convincing, but still, the I suppose the essential kernel of the idea was interesting about muslin. It was. So when I back... This was in 2013, beginning 2014, I went back to Bangladesh where I go about two, three times a year. I discussed it with the people over there and they said, that's you need to know a little bit more. So I read a few articles and I read about this plant that grew. And for some reason, I said to the guys that, look, that plant isn't there. But you know what? The rivers are still there, even though they've moved course. Let's just sail those rivers and talk with the people if there's any kind of a memory in the land about it. Not the memory that is there in the libraries, but amongst the people. And we started sailing from, you know, just outside Dhaka, this place where the mustard plant grew, Kapashia. And from there, we started sailing, going to villages, collecting plants, talking with people. And older people, especially Hindus, remembered the stories, maybe third generation or something. Because Hindus, they reveal the cotton because of the, the cotton thread that they put around their neck because of the wick of a, of a lamb. And they talked about it in very reverential ways. They would say, oh, yes, remember that. And it was a soft cloth. I never saw it. Or oh, my great-grandmother had it and so on. But everybody had a certain, I would say, nostalgia, respectful nostalgia about it. It wasn't like people were saying, oh, forget about it. You know, that was in those days. Today we have nylon and we have synthetics. Why bother? About it? Nobody said that. And one began to think that the spirit of that textile was still hovering nearby. All right. It almost felt like it. And um, we collected plants and we came back. We were offering rewards for information and so on. We printed flyers. We distributed them in the villages. We came back and then I went around to the weavers. And the weavers were doing mostly for commercial purposes. They were doing quite coarse cloth, like about 40, 50, 60 count because of the commercial pressure, the cost pressures, and they were doing it very gaudy and so on. So when I talked to them about it, they said, yeah, we remember. And they would remember it, but they had not seen it. 
And these are traditional weavers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are fourth, fifth, sixth generation weavers. Absolutely. They are weavers. And there's a story about it. I mean, there are uh, songs that weavers use for weaving, okay, known as shlo in Bangla. They help them to weave, okay, that the fourth thread goes down, the fifth one go, comes up and like that, they remember it. Like a rhyme. Like a mnemonic. Okay. Absolutely. You know, you have these 30 days at September, April, June, so you remember that. <laughs> so they would have these. And I remember one gentleman had collected some of them. And I remember I said the two opening lines to my weaver who ultimately worked with me. And he recited the whole poem. And I said, uh, Alamin, that's his name, master weaver. And I said to him that, uh, what's the meaning of that? He said, I don't know the meaning. I said, where did you learn it? He said, I don't know who taught it. I said, what does it mean? He says, I don't even know what it means. I said, so where has it come from? He says, I don't know. I just know I know the poem. So there is something within the unconscious memory, human, you know, communal memory, I would say almost, not an individual memory, but a communal memory, that this provoked them, okay, which made you think that, you know, the thread is there to literally use that metaphor. When we started asking them to weave. They said, we do 50, 60 count. You are asking us because I told them it's no use doing, if you're doing 60, no use doing 70. Let's go for broke. Let's go for 300. They said, that's impossible. So we tried it for about two months. Then the whole village revolted. They said, no, we don't want your money. We know you're paying us. We don't want your money. It's just driving us crazy because we don't make any progress. So I remember I went there with my projector, slide projector, and everything in my laptop and everything. I gave a presentation on Mustin to all the villagers. And they listened in rapt attention. At the end of it, they said, we will do it. Okay? It's part of our, it's part of our identity. Because everybody wishes to be recognized beyond remuneration, right? You want to earn a living, but you want to earn a living in a manner where people, you know, applaud you for it, okay? Rather than look down upon you. And the weavers are the same. So that's why they took it up. So these were the kind of inspirations I had along the journey, you know, listening, collecting, weaving, thinking that why is it that this particular fabric known to everybody around the world, which belonged over here, was never actually recognized by us? Why is it that this story has been told by the English, the very people who have actually killed it? It's fine. I applaud them for the fact that they've told the story, but they don't mention Bangladesh. So uh, to me, it was a sensitive point that our country's heritage, robbed by others, told by others, could not be claimed by us. And therefore, I thought, OK, let me try my best. At the end of the day, I was not a natural fit, but I had, I suppose I had that, uh, the tenacity to put that information together to also at some one stage, because we had no intention of weaving, but at one stage we thought, you know, people always feel it is not tangible if they don't see it. Okay, and that make it tangible. Let's do the weaving also. Let's look for the plant. And that's how, you know, the ball started to roll. How did you find the plant? How did you find the seed? Well, this is where I suppose engineering comes in, because, you know, I always say, if you want to spread the word, you have to tell the story. Human beings love stories. However, if you want to establish the fact, then you've got to have measurable data. So it is the same for, you know, it's great to say it's ethereal and it's gossamer-like and all that. But hey, show me the color, you know, show me the plant, all right? So I realized that the fossilized plant is in the Kew Gardens in the UK, which I'd seen. It is also in Kolkata, okay, the fossilized plant, you know, about almost 200 years old, but it's dead. I mean, you can't do anything with it. The seeds are also along with the plant. Sometimes the seeds are there, but they're dead. What you could do is you could collect them and do the DNA test. 
Okay, and so we did it with university in England. We established a certain DNA. So this is where the science comes in. Never mind the legend and the stories and all that stuff. And then we did DNA of the samples we'd collected. And one particular one came about 70% match. Now these matches can vary. And that's where we have come to in our search. Maybe, and we have been cultivating it, growing, using some of that cotton as a filler, not as the main yarn, but as a filler as we do it. But that's how we started to match it. So we are doing it not on the basis of stories, okay, alone, but of scientific facts that can speak for themselves. So if I understand correctly, so you obtained the DNA? We obtained the DNA. We obtained, first of all, the samples of the dead plant, okay, from Kew Gardens. We then did the DNA profiling, which took months. You know, it's a very complex thing, plant DNA. We did that and we found out the DNA of the old plant. Then we did the DNA of the current plants that we had collected and matched them with that. So where did you get the current plant? Is that the... Different locations, riverbanks, near Assam, places, different locations and all that. And once that showed came close, those are the ones that we are now cultivating on the riverbanks themselves. So we have leased a plot of land near the riverbank, and that's where we grow them. And then we collect some of the cotton, again, test. You have the weavers who are now convinced to come along mm -hmm. with you on your journey. And you have the seeds or plants to make progress. But what about the equipment? Well, there isn't a huge amount of equipment that's needed, okay? And um, the equipment hasn't changed very much. As a matter of fact, when we started to weave, we introduced certain things to make their life easier. For example, for humidity, there's no sense about uh, of using the river and going on to the river and so on. We just bought humidifiers and we installed them in the weaver's house. We installed hygrometers where they could measure temperature and humidity. We gave them smartphones so that they could show us the weaving and we could I can discuss their design from London with them. Use the technology. On the charka, we, we just built the charkas on a lathe machine to make it smoother, less primitive. But we did not tamper with the actual manual skill that is required. So those are the things that we have done and the equipment is there. I think our biggest challenge will probably be in the yarn because the yarn is still that we're using. We're spinning in India, okay, using Indian cotton and our own cotton. And that is still a, a big challenge. But what we have done is that we've moved our weavers, the ones we are working with, because it's not many. It's basically one person that we started with. We started with the whole bunch. It came down to one person. And from him now is about another 20 people that can do it. And they essentially, we take that fine yarn and we replicate the saris of the old. So we've done 200 count, which is just on the threshold. We've done 300 count muslins. And the highest we've achieved is 400 count, okay, which is in a museum in Manchester. And now we're doing a 500 count. And I think I'm going to close it at 500 count. Sari is about six and a half yards. Yeah, meters. That's right. How long does it take to weave that? And the width is how many? 48 inches. 48 inches. Yeah. Yeah, it can vary between 42 to, you know, previously saris are 42. I believe nowadays they're 48. I mean, women have become a bit taller. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the six meters is traditional. Okay, with six and a half yards, as you said over there. And then it will have an archel, which is the trailing end that you put over the shoulder normally. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then there's the body. And of course, there's a border, which is the par. Okay. Which is there. And most of these muskins were woven of that size. So it would be that 48 inches by about, you know, six and a half yards that they would be weaving it. 
either they would weave it as plain, so no designs on it at all, or they would weave it in the other varieties of muslin, like they would weave a striped one or a checkered one. Or the last and the most unique one was the jamdani, which is the flowered one. Hmm. So they would weave it according to that. Now, everything depends upon two factors. If I take out the quality of raw materials, the two factors that are important is the fineness of the yarn. When you ask that, how long does it take? So if you go from 200 to 300 count, it's not that, you know, that's 50% more time. It could be 70% more time. Okay. 300 to 400 is a huge jump. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not just, you know, a hundred count more. 400 count is another ball game altogether. So the fineness of the yarn is a major factor. And the second is the design, the complexity of the design. Because Jamdani is that unique one where the motifs are actually, you know, woven into the weft. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're woven in there. And because of that, if you have a very complex one with very fine yarn, it takes literally more than a year. In our case, when we did 300 count without knowing anything about it, it took us approximately about eight months to weave one sari. The next one took us in the region of about five and a half months. So I think we are there in terms of five months to six months for a 300 count. And once the process is, you know, thought through better, the process is standardized, it may... Yeah, well, yes, it's standardized. The designs are standardized. The problems are standardized, like, you know, the yarn, they've got a hangover. And another very important part is obviously the, the reed through which they pull those yarns. So the fineness of the reed and those are... We have to even redesign reads and so on. So all that is done. Then you get much more confidence in, in, you know, working on a particular design. We, for us at one time in Bangladesh, 200 count was unthinkable. Nowadays, you know, this group of people for them, 200 count is not unthinkable at all. 300, they can get there almost. You know, a few of them can get there. 400, now it's only our master weaver who can do that. But with him now, we are working on a 500. And these are not plain. These are all you know, with the flowered geometric design of Jamdani on top of it, of the old. And uh, the one in the museum is just as see-through as the one that you have seen now, or even more than that almost. Can one purchase these saris? Yes, they can. I mean, initially, my intention was to ensure that people believe that we can do it and we can replicate it, okay, to give confidence to the buyer and to the weaver, Mm -hmm. okay, that it can be done to establish the credentials, you could say. But once now that I know that we can do it, 200 count is what we are selling, 300 count we are selling. And just last month, a lady has placed an order for a 400 count, which I told her that, look, I'm not going to give up my 400 count. I'll make a new one for you, but you'll have to wait a long time and it will be very expensive. And she said, I don't care about the expense. I don't care about the time, but I want one. So she's probably going to have one. So how much does a 400 count uh, sari made in muslin, Dhaka muslin cost? <laughs> cost. Price is about $6,000. Could be a bit more. Okay. If you go for more complex or something, we're not going to go for more complex. It's really a very beautiful sari. I can send you the pictures of it. Okay. Uh, which uh, is theirs. And that's uh, that's what she wants. And she says that she's willing to wait for it. We, ha- we know we can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll go. We'll try and do one. So it's a piece of history. It's a work of art. It, at that, this point, it's not a piece of clothing. Uh, two things. One is that they're each of them unique because you can't have another one of the same one. So it, it is unique. It's like an art. It is a heritage because it obviously has enormous roots that go back about almost 800, 900 years back. 
and um, it's something that i think just stays in value mm-hmm. i mean i can't if you treat it well then it stays in value with you and i do insist that my weaver puts his name on in on the sari just like an artist puts their name on a painting because i think it's a work of art so at the trailing edge he puts his, he weaves his name in so that uh, you know this is his creation and it is these are creations so all these sarees are by order only at this point at this point except for the 200 count we have a few of them which uh, you know uh, are available through our website www.bengalmuslin.com so on that if you go below there's one place called muslin bazaar and in there are designs and products so you can see the designs over there and the 200 counts very beautiful ones over there they are available okay for sale because we can replicate them almost without a problem the problems start from 300 upwards that we are not that sure about it it does depend upon a few factors but 200 counts yes they are available and they are in stock a few of them 300 counts are on order 400 count is a very special order mm-hmm. so you've been on this mission shall we say for about 7 years oh uh, well time's flown hasn't it yeah 2014 yeah i guess it's this is the 7th year 6 years how do you feel do you feel you have accomplished something you have revived something how do you feel uh personally i get i feel very nice every time i meet the weavers <laughs> mm-hmm. i like to feel as if there is reflected success it's not me or may i dare say you as a matter of fact because we you i and others aren't really the discoverers we are the transmitters we are the people who have collected their effort showcased it packaged it and presented it and we are a very important medium there's no doubt but that's what we are we are the medium the real people the real artists and the real heroes are the women and the men you know who are behind the craft and often you know their names are unknown their efforts are unknown and they have to undergo this trial of having to buy materials to manufacture goods and then to also do the marketing of it i mean that's a lot to be asked from any one person to be doing an artist to do marketing also and to do negotiations of that so i feel good about it when i see that i also feel good when i see the the slightly expanding community of confidence that has come so where there was only people doing maximum they did 80 count everything was in the region of 60 count today when i walk over there you know some of the weavers tell me hey saf you know come on let's start at 300 count come on bring us a design for that and they're like oh we can easily do that 200 that's not a problem you know even my younger brother can do it mm-hmm. so this is a nice feeling to have and the other thing that i like is you know the book is fine the movie is fine but i've also i think mentioned to you that i converted the book you could almost say into a comic book for children the name of the book is muslin our story the name of the film which came out a year and a half later is legend of the loom okay which is a 42 minute documentary on that which has been in various festivals and then the book itself was transformed into this uh, comic book which is in the land of muslin which is in english and bangla coming back to your question about how do you feel about it i feel good when i hope because this comic book sells for about like you know a couple of dollars i almost give it away to children schools and so on because i believe that they should be proud of this story and you know they read comics on cinderella and you know all that stuff but it's better that they read something like this so so hopefully that is good so if the younger generation has a fuller idea about our heritage i think that is slightly good so i think to me at the end of the day 
muslin has these aspects which i am happy about but beyond that it's not really the story isn't about muslin the story is about revival of identities we lose languages we lose species right we lose other crafts and if one can have this urge to repay back to the land and to the society repay some of what we all have taken like you are doing these podcasts similar to that you know there's a sense of you know let's give something back i think that's a good feeling the loss of language especially being in the united states it's a very yeah. very very tragic thing that happens to all of us in regardless of how hard we try mm-hmm. you know when i started this thing about muslin you know there were people who asked me that why do it you know uh, who's going to wear it it's so expensive you expect it to really make any sense besides all this fine machine cloths and all that that is available and and so and my kind of rationale if you call it that was that i said look you don't have a turkey every day of the year you have a turkey when there's a special occasion you don't wear a fancy suit every day of the year you wear it on a special occasion muslin was never an ordinary item quite literally it was a bourgeois item a luxury item royalty it gave you a sense of power and privilege and the finest of it was reserved for the emperors i understand that but you know a pyramid always has a top and it was at the top of the pyramid you don't flatten the pyramid and get away with it so do remember that this was part of your heritage and let people take a conscious decision whether they want it or not if they consciously say that we've seen it we've seen this lovely fabric we've seen the people go gaga over it but we still don't want it that's fine but if they say we never knew about it which is what the condition was 5 6 years ago didn't know about it didn't know what the plant was didn't know what the weavers could do or couldn't do it's a story was that mustin is something from america mustin is something from uttar pradesh mustin was something from china you know and half the time people in bangladesh told me that mustin is from silk and even now some people do there are blogs that you read on the internet where people are explaining that you know how the finest silk made it how egyptian mummies were wrapped in mustin no they were not they were wrapped in linen so all these kind of myths abound when there's a vacuum of knowledge does anybody can say anything nobody has put a stake in the ground i hope our efforts have put a small stake in the ground i could say this is it this is muslin this is where it was this is our story now you know let's take it forward from there thank you so much sir it was fascinating to go along this journey with you i can experience how the cloth feels thank you so much for sharing thank you thank you so much for this opportunity and it's amazing to that uh, this fabric gives these opportunities this is one of the better things about it you know these opportunities to meet people like yourself you know who are all sort of dedicated ambassadors in different corners of the world who would not have met without without this fabric thank you you were listening to mindful businesses with vedya ayer and our guest today was saiful islam from bengal muslin if you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show send an email to info@mindfulbusinessespodcast.com subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app remember to rate and review us on google or apple podcasts to learn more about this and other episodes check out our website mindfulbusinessespodcast.com if you learned to think or two from this episode share it with one friend this is vidya ayer with mindful businesses